I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are in the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And I guess I want to point out that there's several different pieces that go on here. So Alan's going to pull those apart. And then when we get to my segment, I'm really going to focus on a little bit of different aspect um, on on children and children in the church. And I think you'll see how I get there from these passages. But I'm gonna, we're going to head up to the beginning, and I'll have Alan take it away. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our lectionary text for today contains Jesus' second passion prediction, according to the synoptic tradition. And it also involves a dispute among uh, the disciples about who was the greatest mm-hmm. of them. And Jesus' answer involves an object lesson about a child. Now, since that's part of our text for today, and since there's another episode involving children, the one about let the children come to me um, in, in uh, Mark 10, 13 through 16, we're going to talk about that passage today as well. So Mark introduces this segment simply by saying they went on from there and passed through Galilee in Mark 9.30. Mm-hmm. We don't really know where there is. After the dialogue at Caesarea Philippi, Mark recounts the transfiguration of Jesus on a high mountain mm-hmm. that is unnamed. The highest mountain in the vicinity would have been Mount Hermon at 9,200 feet, but there's really no way to tell whether that was the location or mm-hmm. not. Uh, There were other smaller mountains in what is known today as the Golan Heights, where this may have happened. Uh, Given the notice that they passed through Galilee and then later came to Capernaum, it's also possible that it was a mountain in Upper Galilee, uh, like Mount Mm -hmm. Merom, which was about 3,900 feet. Uh, and was not far from Capernaum. Early Christian tradition identified it with Mount Tabor, but Mount Tabor was to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee and very much deep into Galilean territory, and I don't think that makes sense of Jesus' earlier Mm. attempts to avoid Mm. Jewish territory or to go unnoticed, you know, to Mm. go that far into Galilee. You know, I was thinking about this just today. Does it matter? Do we do we do we need to know which mountain it was that we is don't. significant? We don't. It's just it's just a matter of trying to trace the movements of Jesus yeah. here and trying to yeah. understand where he right. is and Obvi- how, how he's getting to where he's going. Interesting. Obviously, when um, Mark wrote this, it, perhaps there was a tradition even then yes. um, that he yes. that people knew which mountain it was. It's interesting right? though that he just says up on Isn't a high that mountain. Interesting. Yeah. It is yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I. You almost wonder if he even had doubt about which one it was. Okay, so keep on going. We have this this story about the transfiguration. That yeah, and so we're just kind of setting the stage for for what mm-hmm. for our passage for today. Following the transfiguration story in Mark nine, Mark recounts a dialogue with Peter, James, and John about the coming of Elijah as they were coming mm-hmm. down the mountain, and then recounts the healing of a boy with convulsions when they came to the disciples, perhaps at the foot of the mountain of transfiguration. And once again, Mark mentions a whole crowd that was present with the disciples, mm-hmm. and perhaps this is the same one mentioned in connection with the events at Caesarea Philippi. But I guess that depends on where this took place and just how public Jesus' presence had become. Right, right. That's, again, one of those interesting pieces you almost wish Mark would have detailed, mm-hmm. you know, all the people that were there or whatever, but um, um, very interesting. I, I, I'm guessing maybe this is a... a 
an important, unimportant question, but I'm guessing a whole crowd would include women probably. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. So moving on here, um, this, this idea that, uh, this next piece is that Jesus did not want people to know. So here's this whole crowd, but yet Mark indicates that Jesus did not want anyone right. to know. So t- explain this. Well, I, you know, and that, that sort of ties in with the earlier episode in Caesarea Philippi mm-hmm. that the crowd very likely would have been a crowd of Jesus followers, yeah. not just a, just a crowd of the populace. Yeah. And so if, if that's the case, then perhaps Jesus is able to, has been able to escape public notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's hard to know though. And, and, you know, to some extent, some of this may reflect the seams in the gospel tradition where some of these stories may have circulated originally on their own and were put together in this sequence mm-hmm. in the in the either in the oral tradition or perhaps in an mm. early written document or perhaps by Mark. We don't know. Nonetheless, we get a, a passion prediction. We and do. And it is different than the first one. Yes. And and so the fact that Jesus didn't want anyone to know that he was a Galilee is explained because you know for Mhm. The reason for that is that he was teaching his disciples about his coming betrayal, death, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we have the second passion prediction. And it's a little bit different from the first one. Uh, in the first one, Jesus emphasizes his rejection at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's very fairly specific about that. Mm-hmm. But here Jesus says that the Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of men. Um, and so rejection has intensified into betrayal here. And if you're translating from your Greek New Testament, the verb paradidotai literally is being betrayed, is indeed in the present tense, although in the context it clearly refers to an event that will take place in the future. And we're familiar with the historical present in Mark's gospel. This is an example of the fairly uncommon futuristic present mm-hmm. in the New Testament. What? what? Tell us uh, what tells you that it's futuristic present if it's the same if it's the same endings. Just the fact that the 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 event that it points to is something that's in the future, okay. and so logically speaking, um, it has to be referring okay. to a future event. Okay. Yeah. And how is that? Is that impacted then in different translations? Are some people mistranslating? Or has everyone no, got that figured pretty out? Much, okay. Pretty much. The okay. translations were so all unified. It would just be new. It might be just newer uh, Greek students that might tend to. Right. And it's just, it's something that, that you know, m- most people learn about the historical present in Greek class. Mm-hmm. You don't really hear about the futuristic present right. in Greek class, I, but it, it's, it's a, there. It, is, okay. it is there in the New Testament. It's, it's not common, but it is there. You know, I. As a newer Greek student, you know, I've, I've, I've had this experience where, and you get so convinced because you know what mm-hmm. it is, and then you realize that no one else has translated it that <laughs> right. way. And so do, you know, kind of assume that they probably know better than you do on, on these kinds of things, well, and especially I, that, when everybody does it. <laughs> right. And that's, that's why I recommend people look at the translations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, you know, uh, betrayed, and, and the fact that Jesus is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, that's something of a formula mm-hmm. for Jesus' death in the synoptic tradition. All three Gospels use the exact same language in the Second Passion Prediction. Um, and um, uh, we see also in, in Luke 24-7, when the risen Jesus is explaining to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that, uh, the you know, the, the Messiah had to be betrayed into the hands of men. He uses this same formula. So it's, it's kind of interesting. It's a bit of a formula passage. Okay, yeah. okay. So then Jesus just follows up by a very straightforward statement. They will kill him. And that is in the future tense. It is a future tense verb. So okay. this is another thing that helps us understand the present. Mm-hmm. You've got a present tense verb followed by two future tense verbs. That 
seems okay. to be, you know, a pretty good mm-hmm, marker mm-hmm. of what's going on. It's really blunt. That's a, yes. as you said. They will kill him. It's very blunt. Uh, it's it's different from, from before, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, you know, it's not like the Son of Man will be lifted up, you know, right, in John's right. gospel. It's very blunt. Um, and and in Mark in in Mark uh, in Mark's version of the second passion prediction, Jesus seems to emphasize this because he repeats, three days after being killed, he will rise again. So they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of a double emphasis on the killing mm-hmm. part, which is we might notice that's it's, unusual. You know, at least in 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 my space in the English, it's. It's, it just comes right at you. And mm-hmm. I, I think the Greek probably comes off the same way. Just yeah, kind of, whoa. Surely, surely. I mean, it's something that it kind of takes your breath away by the heaviness of the words there. It's very straightforward, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, the notice that after being killed, Jesus would rise again three days later has caused a bit of a stir, not only in the textual tradition, but in the English translations. You know, we're, we're, we're used to, we would think it would be on the third day, not mm-hmm. three days later. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and so the the scribes copying the Greek manuscripts um, replaced this with uh, the parallel in Matthew seventeen on the third day, mm-hmm. and actually th- this this um, reading created such a stir in the Greek text that um, a few manuscripts actually change Matthew seventeen twenty three to reflect this ah. reading after three days huh. so it it obviously made an impression on the yeah, scribes yeah, and, yeah. and the scribal traditions but the other thing that i noticed is the interesting way in which english language tra- translations try to kind of translate that away they they try to try to alleviate this problem with the way they translate mm. the passage so it, it not only affected the greek tra- language tradition but also the, the english, english translations tradition. interesting yeah. Yeah. so how did the how did the disciples respond to this? How did they understand? Well, Mark notes that they just did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Mm. And the verb is ignoun, which is the imperfect of agnoeo, uh-huh, uh-huh. which normally is translated as be ignorant. And I would say that it is perhaps a stronger way to say that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying than some of the other options that were available in the New Testament mm. vocabulary. Epistemi is a word for understanding. Oida is another word for knowing or understanding. Suniemi. There were a number of options. And I think to be ignorant of something was a, mm. a, bit, a bit of a stronger way of saying that. Um, are most of the English translations using ignorant or are they using something you know i didn't check this part Mm. so i don't know okay um now as we've mentioned before the very notion of a messiah dying was completely foreign to the jewish mindset messiahs don't die messiahs ascend you know throw off the yoke of the romans and ascend to the throne of david right Moreover, although there was a concept of resurrection and the ultimate kingdom of God, Mm -hmm. the idea of someone dying and rising again after three days was not at all a part of their worldview. That was just not something that made any sense to them. So, you know, I mean... There, there's probably good reason why they didn't understand, but at the same time, I think the way Mark words this contributes another piece to the theme of the disciples' lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. And when you contrast Luke 9.45, there he says, he uses the same language, but he elaborates further. They did not understand this saying, and he uses agnoeo there, mm. same word, but, it say, but Luke says, its meaning was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it, which uh, sounds like he's maybe letting the disciples uh-huh, off the hook. uh-huh. Yeah, you know, 
I'm, I'm, I'm taking, I'm thinking about this as Mark's constructing this, and in a way, it takes the the reader who is is re, you know, I'm looking at it maybe from this different context, but it takes the reader too into this. You read it the first time and. Do you really believe? And again, it reminds mm. you that there is disbelief by the disciples. So you two who are in disbelief, follow along mm. with me mm-hmm. as you can understand that they didn't get it either. Sure. You know, I, and sure. maybe I'm wrong, and I sometimes come by the reader, but I think no, it's No, I think so. I think, I think that could have been a motive for Mark, you know, is that people, people may have had challenges with believing all of this, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, even as they do today, mm-hmm. right? And right, so, right. Yeah, that, kind I of think, a reminder that disbelief is kind of part of the tradition. Well, um, as... as, um, as um, One of my favorite philosophers, John Caputo, says in his little uh, work called On Religion, um, (laughs) faith and unbelief co-constitute each Mm -hmm. other. You know, we we cannot uh, embrace faith unless we can uh, acknowledge our unbelief or our questions or our doubts. You know, we have to do that in order to be able to move to faith. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. All right, so now we go to um, this kind of a nut second episode yeah next we have a di- the dialogue with uh jesus uh, um, with them about true greatness and the fact that this episode is paired with the second of jesus passion predictions i think creates just a significant yeah, amount of irony here you know while it's jesus like, wow, is they don't get it right mm-hmm. while jesus is contemplating his impending death at the hands of men his disciples are arguing over which of them will be greatest in the kingdom that they're expecting yeah. jesus to bring yeah. you know they're just totally missing the point yeah, it's very human, though. Well, of course. I, I, kind of, that's, you know, when, when I look at that, it's like, wow. Well, and I think that's the value of Mark's Portrait of the Disciples is that they're not these these perfect apostles, St. Peter, St. John, mm-hmm, St. Exactly. James. They're real people who are struggling to grapple with 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 what's going on in their world. Right, yeah, exactly. So um, how does... How does this begin? How does so this Mark introduces begin? the episode by saying that they came to Capernaum. And we've seen the importance of Capernaum in the Gospel of Mark before, especially in chapters 1 and 2. There seem to have been these days of ministry in Capernaum. And Mark continues by reporting that when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? Now, we're not told which house, but the last time a house in Capernaum was mentioned, it was Simon's house in Mark one twenty nine. That is the home of Simon Peter. And as we discussed before, the mention of this house raises the possibility that a house church in mm-hmm. Capernaum existed at some mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does Jesus um, respond to these these uh, debaters about the greatest. Well, he, he just asked them, you know, what were you arguing about on the way? And ironically, they, they, you know, or maybe not ironically, it's probably fitting that they, Mark says, they were silent, <laughs> you know, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. And, you know, perhaps we can see the very fact that they were arguing was a demonstration that they didn't have the first inkling of a clue as to what Jesus' true mission was or what he was about. They seem to have had enough understanding to recognize that it was inappropriate for them to argue with one another about who would be greatest among them. So, And it really seems to come be part of it. They're, they're really missing the whole point. So are. how does Jesus continue this well, you know, then Mark continues with what we what we have as a teaching episode. Basically, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, "Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all." Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, the idea of true greatness as being a matter of serving is one that is found in the synoptic tradition elsewhere. It's found in John's gospel. This is something that's very, very clearly a part of Jesus' teaching. Uh, we may think of the synoptic phrase that many who are first shall be last. Um, and I think Jesus was trying to get them to understand that they, they would find true fulfillment or true greatness in life through service, not through self-advancement. And mm -hmm. we're going to hear this again in Mark's gospel before we're done. So tell us about, he brings in this, this child. This becomes an object lesson. Tell us about that. Yeah. So Mark tells us then that Jesus took a child, and, and we wonder where the child came from. Maybe this child was part of the family of one of the disciples who was traveling yeah. with them, or maybe this child was part, part of one of the families with whom they were staying in Capernaum. We don't know. But Jesus took the child and used him or her as an object lesson to reinforce the point about being last and serving all. Now, Jesus de declared that whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I think we should let that sink in. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to come back to this because we've heard this we've heard this language before, and I don't think we had associated with this. But I'm going to save that for the for the end. And he says, "Whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me." Mm -hmm. Now, at first glance, I think it's a little bit unclear to us that what welcoming a child in Jesus' names means means, but in this context, it clearly relates to becoming last of all and servant of all. And that's another clue I think we need to hang on mm -hmm, to. Mm -hmm. Now, one piece I think we have to understand in order to get this is to is the place of children right. in Jewish society. You know, we have a fairly sentimental attitude toward mm -hmm. children. We dote on our children. We, we kind of have a cult of the children these days almost, really, when well, you think about it. Perhaps, I mean, yeah. You know, we talk about that sometimes is that we drop all for the child yes, often. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And that was not the case mm -hmm. in Jewish society. Now, to be sure, the Jewish society valued children due to their understanding of human life. They valued children as heirs, right, you know, who absolutely. would carry on the family name. But in Jewish society, children were among those who had no rights, right. no power, uh, no status. Right. They were among the most vulnerable in society. Mm -hmm. They were literally the last in terms of the order of society. A child would have been lower even than a servant because a servant at least could contribute labor to the household, mm -hmm. whereas children were simply mouths to feed, especially girls. Sorry, ladies. Now, I would say Jesus was pushing the disciples' notions about greatness, and he was pushing back on it by mm -hmm. identifying himself. He's identifying himself with right. a seemingly worthless right. child. That's huge. Mm -hmm. You know, you welcome one of these children in my name, you welcome me. And mm -hmm. again, I'm going to give the, give the clue again. We've seen this language before, but I don't think we think to associate it with this. Mm -hmm. Now, um, one note is that both of these sayings may actually have been motivated by a question in Mark's community as, whether it, as to whether it was appropriate for children to attend gatherings of the congregation. Absolutely. Because of that's the way society was. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, um, and I'll talk about this later, but this is really true in history up to the present. Um, you know, many, many, many children died in infancy. They, um, oh, they, you, you, they practiced infanticide as a exactly. way of birth control. Well, and, yeah. and, but, and they just, um, it was, it was high risk of be a child. Sure. And sure. so 
there's, I don't know that I necessarily agree with these, these historical um, theories, but there's this theories because of that, there's, uh, the investment in them is low uh, mm-hmm. in a way. It's mm-hmm. kind of like a survival of the fittest almost kind of kind of mentality because there's a, such a good chance the child would die right, right. Um, from well, even, a whole number e- of things. Even my great-grandfather's family, there were like uh, nine children and five of them survived to adulthood. Exactly. So yeah. it's a different time too and um, in terms of just would children, mm-hmm. would a child mm-hmm. even survive to adulthood? Yeah. So, yeah. So as I said before, we're going we're gonna to include in our discussion today some verses that are actually part of a future lectionary reading, but I think it seems more appropriate to take them up in connection with our passage for today. In the lectionary, they're, they're paired with uh, Jesus' teachings about divorce, and I don't think that's really all that consistent. So in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, Mark reports the episode where Jesus takes the object lesson about children and the kingdom of God to a whole different level. The story begins with Mark's notice that people were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples, the the new RSV says, spoke sternly to them Mm -hmm. in Mark 10, 13. But really, the the word is rebuke. The disciples rebuked those who were bringing the children to Jesus. And again, I think this likely reflects the typical Jewish view of a child's place in society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mark tells us that when Jesus saw this, he was indignant that's the translation of the of the new RSV. Mm. I could be mistaken on this because I didn't get a chance to really track this down. But if memory serves me, this is the only time in Mark's gospel when Jesus is said to be angry with the disciples and perhaps also in the whole synoptic tradition. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus responds with the well-known saying to us, let the little children come to me, do not stop Mm -hmm. them, for it is to such as these as the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Now it's a whole different space with this role of children in the kingdom of God. Here, children are the role models. They're the ones that demonstrate what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, in our context, you know, um, uh, this statement has been interpreted with reference to childlike faith. We have to have childlike faith in order to enter the kingdom of God, or perhaps we have to have the humility and gentleness of a child. I think that reflects our fairly sentimental view of children and is not consistent at all with with the view in that day Mm -mm. and time. in that day and time, in Jesus saying that the kingdom of God belongs to children is similar to saying that the kingdom of God belongs to those who are poor, yeah. those who are meek, to the hungry, to to those who are strangers, to those who are in, yeah. in prison. Yeah. You know, that the kingdom belongs to those who are the least and the last, the most vulnerable in right, society. Right, right. And if I hope we, you're beginning to, I hope the clue is beginning to dawn on you now here where I'm seeing a parallel. Uh, I, I'm seeing the parallel with Matthew 25. Yes. You know, yeah, I was I hungry. Right. I was a stranger and you came to me. And so Jesus identifies in Matthew 25 with those who were just considered to be the outcast and the least and the last in society. Yeah. And and to me, I think um I think that um uh whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me is perhaps a mark inversion of that whole oh. saying in, in Matthew sure. 25. Sure, sure. That, that works, yeah. 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 So um, basically Jesus blessed those who were poor because in the biblical view, the poor were those who had no other refuge but God. And so therefore they were the ones who were most likely to have really a true faith, mm-hmm. which was what Jesus was seeking. 
Um, now, one one side note here is that it may be the case, as Bultmann argued, that Mark was simply trying to make the point that children have a place in the kingdom of God, although I think it's more than that. But but the reason why this is, this is a possibility is that there was actually a debate among the rabbis about right. this, whether children would be raised in the final kingdom of God and participate mm-hmm. in the final kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So basically, I think these two passages shed light on one another. Um you know, again, as I said before, I believe that Jesus' statement about welcoming one such child in my name, whoever does this welcomes me, is Mark's version of Matthew 25. Mm-hmm. You know, I was yeah, hungry yeah, and you gave me something to yeah, eat. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, entering the kingdom of God as a child would be very much like becoming the last and the last of all and the servant of all. And mm-hmm. it's the synoptic equivalent, really, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet as he does in John's gospel and instructing them to serve one another in that way. Mm-hmm. So basically, Jesus is teaching his disciples to identify with the least and the last yeah. in society, just as he did. And that all fits together, too, and um, perfectly, as you think then about that whole thing you talked about with who is the greatest. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is what is meant. Yeah. And I, I, I agree 100%, and I think that's all really really ties into uh, the broader the broader tradition how we're supposed to be seeing it sure yeah sure all right thanks christy thank you Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy have a chance to, to take us through some of what the Reformers had to say about these things. So please take it away, Christy. Yeah, sure. Well, and I did look at these verses, but it's really an opportunity when you get the word child in, in Scripture <laughs> to really think about uh, the ideas about children and childhood during the Reformation, because this is a period that very much shapes uh, the church's view of children. And I think it stems into some of the issues that we deal with today, particularly in some of these um, back-to-the-family groups who are really modeling their idea of family on what the reformers drew up. And while today many of us in progressive churches think they're looking almost kind of backward, they're looking back to the Reformation, during the Reformation period, the ideas about family that they presented were actually quite progressive. So again, it's it's interesting to think about how the church is changing as society is, is moving forward. And I think it's important for us as we're thinking about as we move into a new world, we have new challenges, how is the church responding to it instead of trying to take us back to earlier eras? So we, we look back at the reformation era as a patriarchal time but if you look at it in context it was really there was a lot of progress there was there's many ways a lot of progress because one of the great you know one of the great debates that women's historians go through is was women's situation better or worse (laughs) and of course you can't really it's not a very good argument either way because there were women that were allowed to go into nunneries for example um that were highly educated in Mm -hmm. those particular roles, whereas the Reformation kind of expected women to be married and in families and celebrated her womanhood that way. And so it's a big... But that cut them off from the educational opportunities. Well, yes and no. I mean... One would one of the big arguments that that I have in my tradition is that um, the Reformation did was one of the first first times that they encouraged kind of a universal education Mm -hmm. because everyone 
who was going a uh, priesthood of all believers needed an educated priesthood and sure. therefore everyone needed to be able to access the Bible and ideally read it. Right. And remember the Bibles are being printed off in the vernaculars and so people have these Bibles in their spoken language now for the first time but can you read it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was an impetus really for the first um, universal education. Now it doesn't really become reality. In fact, I don't think it, it ends up becoming under a national thing. I think it's 19th century that we really start to get a, a true kind of uh, take on universal education. But still, this is the first call for it. And you know, education um, provides. I mean, it's central to sure. ideas of equality, ultimately. And, sure. and so this is really a cool piece. So kind of both. Um, you don't have women that are kind of rising to those upper echelons of society. Like some of these, some of these nuns, these abbesses, they were you know, writing to kings and things mm-hmm. because they were spiritually gifted. You see less of that. I don't well, want to say... And some of, the, some of the gifted mystics, you know, wrote, wrote literature uh, yeah, that we still absolutely. treasure today. And we are still seeing female writers and things, but but you see it in a different way, mm-hmm. right? Um, because many of these women are now getting married, and that was the ideal state. So being a single woman was a problem, and then, of course, as you know, we get the rise of the witchcraft movement, and mm-hmm. it usually hit on single women because what's wrong with them that they're not mm-hmm. married? Um, and so you get that in the Puritan tradition, the Malleus Maleficarum, uh, the Hammer of Witches. Um, I think it's late 15th and 16th century that mm. it comes out and it becomes, you know, how you identify which. And of course that comes into the lore that we're so familiar with. But, but in the, the main thing was that the family was really the centerpiece of what sure. God's expectation. And that's a great change from a world where really the most, um, holy people were those who were celibate. Mm-hmm. And of course the priests were celibate, the nuns were celibate. And the idea is that anything that was of the body was lower. So you get this whole shift. And of course children are part of this, obviously, because sure. children are central to the family. And um, and with that then comes how children are raised in the family. And what we get is a whole bunch of literature, the house pastilla, which is the and the and the um the father um um that is uh guiding and helping families grow in God and so it was really the responsibility of the the Hausvater to raise mm-hmm. children in the knowledge of the church and in fact and this is a big shift because middle ages you had those who work those who pray those who fight everyone had mm-hmm. their kind of identity and while people were under the auspices of the church they you know, they went to church twice a year. They had their children baptized on Easter, and they, they, but they weren't church really wasn't a church part of their, in every Sunday kind of thing. Life, exactly. Life, yeah. I mean, it was like it was there, but there were people that prayed for you, and that's right. what their job. Right. Now that's come under the family, so everyone needs to be involved in prayer. Everybody needs to be involved in attending worship. And, of course, worship is transformed so that everyone can participate. You know, the rise of the, of the hymn book and the hymns that come out of vernacular hymnody. It's not about the priest celebrating the Mass and everybody exactly. else just kind of witnessing it. It is about uh, everybody participating Everybody's in participating. And the focus is on the Word. Exactly. The small catechism, the a large catechism, and we get all these different, and, of course, in our tradition, the Heidelberg Catechism, we get all these different ways that people can begin to understand and their the faith in the world. So it's just a whole it's a whole shift of how the church is functioning. Mm. Um, 
And it's, I mean, it's really cool and fascinating. And of course, if in today, if you would look at the Roman Catholic tradition, you realize, oh, they've kind of come along the same way because it's much more involvement mm-hmm. even there than there would have been in the late Middle Ages. Sure. Um, if you had attended Mass, which you could, of course, do, you were really a spectator to right. it mm-hmm, right. instead of a participant. Well, and as I think we said before, the priest would even face the table, face exactly. away from the congregation, not face exactly. toward the Exactly, and it was all in Latin, which you likely wouldn't have been able to understand. Um it you know it it was a very it was a very different kind of experience than than the kind of full involvement now that I think you would even even that you would still even feel with Roman Catholicism even though it, it has not as much participation as you would see in a pr- Protestant church it still is right. it still is a participatory kind of thing I mean you know, you're going to have responses you're going to have um, um, you're going to have hymns that you're singing that kind of thing you're going to have a sermon that you're going to understand all those pieces. Um, that it shifted, if you will, how the church reaches people. And so um, it's kind of a, a big deal. And so in this idea is that children need to be educated. And we get from the verses that children are wanted and desired by Jesus, that Jesus loved children. Um, and so children, their status, their status starts to maybe improve a little bit. Um, there's still a great fear. There's still high infant mortality, of mm-hmm. course, even in the 16th century. So you're not at the time where um, where you can assume a, a child's going to live. But you're at a time when childhood, the images of childhood begin to be drafted a little more. What's, what's, what should a child education look like? What, how, what, what should a good child look like? How do we help mold a child so the child will be... Uh, pious and good and holy. So there's a lot of stuff that comes out now. It sounds like it sounds like this was the beginning of basically elevating the role of a child from that of a non-entity to a very che- treasured and cherished member of the family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, th- one of the one of the beautiful things um, that they thought is that. Uh, um, Part of the part of the reason of baptism then became, and we see this in Calvin, of raising children in the faith, raising them in a tradition that they become uh, part of the body of Christ from an early, an early um, age. And this, so part of it is to raise them. But what's interesting about this? There's this kind of understanding that children are can be taught things that they can actually teach to their parents because mm. their parents who grew up in this early tradition are are going to be hard to change. Um, Although we're going to try, we're going to we're going to change worship. We're going to try to f- reform them, but we know the future of the reform is in the children. Mm-hmm. So you have all these things: mm. teach children the songs, and they'll go teach their parents. Teach children mm. the catechism, they'll teach their parents. Mm. Um, and so there's this whole shift in this childhood education. And 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 here's a here's a quote I got, I grabbed: For what more Christian thing could happen? than that children be raised well and taught self-discipline, usable skills, and a sense of honor. What richer and better inheritance could any father give his children than to help them advance in these three things and become useful and reliable to themselves and to others? I can summarize in no better way than citing words I once read by a man of God. If one wants to reform the world and make it Christian, one must begin with children. Mm. So what an interest! And yeah. Do you know who? The, do you have the source of that quote? Um, yes, it is by um, 
Um, Otto Brunel's um, on disciplining and instructing children. He huh. was a 16th century reformer. Wow. Yes. Yes. So very um, kind of an interesting take on it. But but Erasmus was sharing the same sentiment. Mm-hmm. Sentiment. Luther had the same sentiment that children were were very important for the future of the faith. But I think it's really really interesting because all of a sudden it kind of moves them away from their complete inability to affect anything. You know, mm. it, 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 it's like the poor and the meek of the child that maybe we were talking about in the verse right. has now been kind of shifted because now they're all of a sudden is a little bit more focused on, on, on children in, in a new way. So it's kind of an interesting, but I, maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it's fair, right? Um, is, is we start to focus on helping the poor and the meek to what a point do they? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems like a natural, uh, if they're, if they're going to try to follow Jesus teaching, then that would follow that children, children's uh, status in, in society and in the family would be elevated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Another thing that comes out of this age, of course, and is, uh, um, infant baptism should children be baptized. And of course, that was a practice, obviously, in the early church. Um, and it, it is actually an issue of big debate in the Reformation period. And we know that. Uh, now, all the magisterial reforma- reformers, that includes the, you know, now will be Lutherans, even what they call the evangelical, the Reformed tradition, they all recognize infant baptism. And that was really part of the tradition. Um, and they actually found it quite dangerous to baptize later i mean unless someone hadn't ever well, been exposed to the faith. Anna, anabaptist was a slur <laughs> rebaptizers it rebaptizers got anabaptism there's a great uh, there was a great of course that in particular was because it's not that you were just baptizing adults it's that you were rebaptizing right. people that had already right. been baptized right and that was a that was a great fear in that and and the fear came from that they believed they were saying that god had no agency in baptizing the child the first time, that it becomes more about mm. the person and a person's choice rather than what God does. Uh-huh. And so that they consider that to be very, very dangerous because people are are taking authority over God. Remember, when God's sovereignty is sure. number one, sure. so rebaptizing is a problem. Adult baptism, not necessarily if if you had never been baptized, it was fine, right? right, right? right. A, a non-issue. It was the rebaptizing pieces that that became an issue. And you know, today one you know one baptism, right? right. Um, right. We don't we don't rebaptize. I know people that go to places that do rebaptize. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, there are a lot of churches that do that, right? Right. Which. <laughs> And 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 you know you're right. I mean, I think it's a matter of where does the where does the real agency of salvation lie? Does mm-hmm. it lie with God and God's grace and mm-hmm. what God is doing, or does it lie with us and our choice and our response? And that's yeah. really kind of the big divide. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. those who see it as lying with our response, they're the ones who will say insist that that it must be believers' baptism. Right. Right. It must be baptism of someone who has made a profession of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, consciously and mm-hmm. and you know with full knowledge and. Um, um, but you know that really is the divide. It's the mm-hmm. divide between those who focus more on God's grace and those who focus on the agency of the person. Yeah, yeah. I can understand a little bit better why you know some of the folks in Zurich were were drowning Anabaptists because they perceived it as as a threat Absolutely. against who God, their right. understanding of God. Right, and they also tended to attack of the of the of the radicals, and as Anabaptists were kind of shoved, shoveled with 
with radicals, you know, people that were against the state. Because remember, state and faith were as yes. one. So people look back at that today going, why were these people bad if they didn't go support the state, if they're true religious people? Because there was no separation of church and state. So when you said, I won't support the state, you were saying, I don't support the faith either. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you were a great threat to the stability of of the world. And whether or not today we can look at that and say, oh, God, that's ridiculous. You can see at that time mm-hmm. and how that culture shaped. So, yeah. Well, this is a, I mean, you know, the, we can't, I think, I think we may or may not re- have an adequate appreciation of what an upheaval the Reformation was, you know, not only in terms of faith, but in terms of society and in terms of politics and in terms of, I mean, you know, the, it, it really reshaped Europe in, in many ways. And, um, you know, you when you go through one of those tumultuous times, you know, um, yeah, there are those who are on the fringes that, that are seen as a threat. And, um, you know, what do you do? What do you, exactly. What, <laughs> you what eliminate do you do? the threat. You eliminate the threat. Exactly. And, and it, was, it was a big deal. And a lot of times when you, despite the disagreements that Luther had with Calvin, with the Roman, even with the Roman Catholics, these radicals were in a whole yeah. different space. Yeah. And, and a lot of us, you know, some of these... I, I think I've said this before. These are um, some of the um, predecessors of people like the Amish and the Mennonites mm-hmm. and people that we think of as being gentle and not problematic. And yet they were in that time frame. They were mm-hmm. considered to be very dangerous because they were. Well, uh, and I th- I wonder to what extent that had to do with the fact that, uh, you know, this was all very new and it, it was all very sort of, um, um, uh, precarious you know for everybody i mean luther luther had to run for his life you know several mm-hmm, times mm-hmm. and there was a lot that was going on that made this a dangerous time and and so you know wh- whether it was rightly or wrongly you know um you know menno simons you know his his writings are are pretty profound mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and actually um some of the anabaptists uh, in in switzerland uh, were were originally disciples of zwingli and exactly. so, you know, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not like all these folks were, were like Thomas Munzer and, right. and, and, right. and seeing the coming of the apocalypse and, you exactly. know, advocating a kind of a David Koresh kind of yeah. craziness. You they know? had a whole, I mean, there's a whole spectrum. I think what's really cool about the Reformation is as people get a hold of scripture and as they feel that they are empowered to read it, they also feel empowered to interpret it. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, education, education going to, you are empowered to read it. And, it, and one, of my, one of my main areas of study is that kind of led people to interpret it however they wanted without mm-hmm. really understanding sure. the languages, without understanding um, the historical uh, background without understanding the theology. They just start reading it and pulling stuff out well, of it. And guess what? That's where we still are That's today, where we right? we still are today. <laughs> and, and Luther, so Luther thought, oh gosh, everyone can read the Bible, put it in there. The Holy Spirit will be there and they will yeah. get it. Yeah. They'll get it. And the reality is they didn't get it. And so he his backlash is, 
I need people to read it the right way, basically. Mm-hmm. I need to make sure. that's So the catechisms come in, I yeah. think 1525, 1526. Um, they start the visitations. Are people getting it at the churches in 1528? And so all of a sudden, all these pieces are coming in. And of course, the hymns that is my particular specialty come in also to educate mm-hmm. people on this is what you should believe. So very interesting. And, and, uh, so reading it rightly means reading it uh, from the standpoint of the rule of faith, uh, you know, the, the, what, mm-hmm. was, what was considered to be the agreed upon consensus of the Christian faith. Right. right. And, then, and again, as we know, the Reformed tradition and the evangelical t- tradition never quite came to the same conclusion about sure. that, right? And, and obviously the Roman Catholics are behind, but they're going to also come in with the Council of Trent, their own, their own stake in this. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out how we might talk about this later, but I think there's some implications um, for the modern church to think about today, especially. I, again, I'm not sure if it's sermon prep as much as it is just thinking about where your people are when they're coming mm-hmm. to church. So. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll be back. Okay, thanks. Hi, everybody. We're back. And um, heading back into our scripture specifically, I think what the main piece out of this is this, this space where you see the disciples talking about who is the greatest and then Jesus coming back with this object lesson through the child. And there's really this interesting tension there between um, how we think of greatness as human beings and how Jesus is, is asking us to think about greatness. So I'm going to have Alan take it away and kind of put it into some perspective for us. Thanks, Christy. Um, you know, I think it's important for us to as we as we try to understand these pieces of Mark's gospel, it's important for us to try to look at it in the flow of Mark's gospel as a whole. But I think it's important for us also to try to see it um, in the setting of the synoptic tradition. We've mentioned this before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when you look at the passion predictions of Jesus, the first one, you know, Jesus says, you know, the Son of Man must be rejected mm-hmm. and be killed and on the third day rise again. And then he goes on and says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So he basically, you know, demonstrates to the disciples, as we said last week, the true nature of his calling and his destiny, that he was going to a cross which was a you know a, a cruel death, but then he tells them the true nature of their discipleship, you know, and then so if you know if they're going to follow him, they're going to need to follow him on a path that is leading him to a cross. Mm-hmm. Now, for some of them, as we said, this will mean their death as well, mm-hmm. and actually right. laying down their lives. Not all of them, and certainly not all of us today. But I think we have something similar going on here. So Jesus, you know, again. And he, as we as we said earlier, you know, he's he's really really kind of a little bit more blunt. You know, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and uh, this is this is sort of a it's almost like um, um, you know the, the betrayed into the hands of men is is a little bit. We should I think we should think of it as you know 
violent men, brutal men. Right. Oh, men yeah. Who are, men, yeah. Men who are going to take advantage of him. And, and then he says, and they will kill right. him. And, and, you know, so it's very blunt in, in, its, in its wording. You know, as I said, I mean, in their mindset, a Messiah doesn't die. Right. But he's, he's just saying it straight out. They're going to kill him. Right, right. And, and maybe there's some sort of disconnect on their part about, well, who's he talking about? Is he the son of man? There might be some of that going on. But, um, you know, it's just almost unthinkable that right after that, they're arguing about, I mean, they're basically arguing about who's going to have the best seats Right. Around right, the throne. Right. right? Yeah. Jesus is going to be on the throne in the kingdom of David. And who's going to be at the right and who's going to be at the left? You know, who's going to be, who's going to have the, the places of honor? Right. In, in, conju- in conjunction with Jesus sitting on the throne of David. It's, but it's like they don't, they don't understand the whole sacrifice. You no. know what I mean? They don't understand. It's they don't realize strange. that he has come to give his life. He has come to serve you know, yeah. as we're going to see later in Mark sitting, chapter 10. He came to serve and not to be served, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. give his life. But it's hard to, It's hard for us, you know, when we think of great, hard, hard to think mm-hmm. mentally about, you can't even, it's, it's not even a, an well, accolade you can, I, you can strive for because it's... You know, we think of greatness. We think of presidents or we think of senators or we think of leaders oh, of yes, business. Yes. You know, you know when I used we to, don't think of we don't yeah. think of of Christians as this is as an interesting. Great. I'm going to put an aside here. I used to teach at the university, and I, I taught uh, one of my. I used to take ancient history, so sometimes um, I'd ask my young people, "Who's a great world leader?" You know, and and they didn't pick pastors. They would say, mm-hmm. and, uh, "A great leader was a president." Usually, great leader was some kind of civil rights leader would be in there too. Martin Luther but King they, Jr. they don't yeah. pick out people of humbleness. They don't pick mm-hmm. out meek people. They don't pick out, um, um, they pick out people that are in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Now I had one pick out Gandhi. I've had a couple pick out Gandhi. Um, and I think I had one pick out Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I've ever seen. Um, I've, Not even the Dalai Lama, huh? I don't think I maybe I mean I had hundreds of students, so that's right, possible. Right. But that one doesn't ring a bell with yeah, me yeah. because anytime it wasn't a president or um, yeah, it would stand out. They stand out. Yeah. So a few of them did. So one is not great if one sacrifices one's life, exactly. You know, in humility, and, and you know, I, I, you guys know that I'm a I'm a fan of Henry Nouwen, and Nouwen, you know, uh, contrasted the the um, sort of the, I guess, the assumption that anybody who has um, any competence at all is going to be upwardly mobile in society, right? That's yeah. just the assumption. Yeah. Well, exactly. He contrasted that with what he called the, the path of Jesus, which is a path of downward mobility. It leads you to serve and to give yourself up, to give up your life, not to, not to rise, climb right. the ladder of success. right. And, and so that might be a, a modern analogy that we can use to kind of get a handle on, you know, where the disciples were as opposed to what Jesus was advocating. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus was advocating, you know, I mean, you know, he, he identifies himself with a little child, one who, you know, right. whoever welcomes a child like this welcomes me. Right. 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 And, and, and that's just as astonishing I think, as Jesus saying, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was sick, I was in jail, I was a stranger. 
Lord, when did we see you, you know, in this way? You know, mm-hmm. they, this just doesn't make sense to them. And yet, you know, Jesus says, to the extent that you did it to the least of these, you, you know, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that's exactly what's going on here is that Jesus is contrasting this sort of path of downward mobility. He's, yeah. he's the ultimate path downward mobility. downward mobility. Yeah. That is, that is a good, good visualization well, path I mean, of downward mobility you know, i think about i think about the 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 christ hymn in philippians 2 you know i mean he 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 does not consider equality with god something to be grasped grasped but he is willing to take on the form of a human and he humbles himself mm-hmm. and being found as a servant he's obedient to god to the point of death even death on the cross well that's about as downward as you can go right exactly when you think about jesus and you think about jesus doesn't stand up for himself jesus i mean first peter two first peter two you know he was insulted he did not insult back you know and and you know he trusted he entrusted himself to the god instead i mean when you really think about jesus compared to how how we respond to things i mean Mm -hmm. it 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 really is path of downward mobility it really is and And, and it's not about it's not about rights it's not about what i deserve it's not about what you owe me it's about um you know, Jesus came to serve and to give his life. And if we claim to follow him, then we must take a path, the same path of service and giving up our lives for others. And, you know, um, that, that doesn't mean I'm going to climb a career ladder, ladder in the church. Right. You know, that doesn't right. mean, well, I've got this plan that, 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 Let's see, I'm going to take this church here, and I'm going to take that church there, and I'm just going to keep going up and up until I get to be the senior pastor right. of a multi-staff church somewhere. Right. But that's kind of the paradigm these days. It, well, it is, and it reminds me of a story that I'm not uh, just about. And I think it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of like even in the church, there's still our human nature that's fighting against our call. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't know about others, but I always have to, kind of give myself a reality check here you know and think about um what I'm, what god is calling me to do rather than whatever kind of ambition is mm-hmm. is pushing me to try to do and and i think if i continue to listen to god's call i i i will be in that space of of that joy in christ but i can that other call is so loud sure. and, oh, it, it's there. and it's there it's all know. around and it's from outside and it it pushes I, I, and it I use the analogy of, um, you know, my, my family gave me this script that there was this mountain that I was supposed to climb. And when I was a seminary professor, I was well on my way to climbing that mountain. Mm-hmm. And then things happened and things changed and, and I was on a different path. And I'm even from the path I'm on now, I can still see that mountain because I still have contact with friends who were in that, who mm-hmm. were in that, uh, mm-hmm. that I taught with. And, um, and yet, you know, the future of the church is likely going to be that the vast majority of pastors are going to be serving small churches. They're going to be solo pastors. Maybe they're going to be pastoring yoked congregations. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're going to be bivocational. I mean, we're already there. The vast majority of churches in the United States right. are under 100 membership. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, th- that is going to be the norm right. in the future. Yeah, it will be. And, you know, I, I think folks are going to need to wrap their head around this call from Henry Nowen, you know, and 
Um, I mean, it's in several of his writings. I, I, I encountered it from a book called Here and Now, which is um, a collection of some of his writings. And, uh, and, but it's, it's a very, I think you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a, for us in our day and time, it is probably a clearer image you know, it, it's that Jesus calls us to a path of downward mobility, not to a path of upward mobility. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, and that's a path of service. It's a path of sacrifice. It's mm-hmm. a path, path of giving ourselves for others. And, you know, let's be frank. I mean, that's not an easy path. It's hard to live that way. It's hard. And I, you know, I keep thinking of, of, I keep thinking of the sermon, the path of downward mobility, you know, as you are, talking to people that are, you know, how many people still are in your congregations that are there because their parents were members and their grandparents were founding members and they're there because it's some kind of prestige thing for them. I mean, there's still a lot of spaces like that. Or in their own career, what are they doing? You know, they're exactly. climbing They're climbing their own career to path to success. Exactly. Right? That's exactly. just, that's so just what an woven into the fabric of our yeah, culture. It, it is. It is. So what an interesting space. And, of course, you know, secular culture, secular philosophies, you know, um, uh, survival of the fittest in terms of economic mm-hmm. success, all those mm-hmm. things are kind of built and bred into us. Be whatever you want to be. And be your best self. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and uh, self-care Ful- is number fulfill, one. Fulfill your potential. Instead of God <laughs> calling me. Well, and you know, yeah. with Nowen, you know, Nowen had taught at Notre Dame and at Harvard and at Yale and yeah. he found it empty. Yeah, he, he did. That's and right. And he took a sabbatic leave and he went to La Arche in France mm-hmm. under Jean Vanier. And yep. he came back and he told his friends, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go be the, the pastor of the Daybreak community in Toronto. And his friends told him, oh, but think about the influence you have here. Think about how many people you can influence through your teaching. And, you know, I think probably... Nowen's days as the pastor of that community were his happiest days. I think so. Yeah, that's in ministry. what he describes. Yeah, he was yeah. a humble pastor mm-hmm. of a community of mentally handicapped, uh, mentally yep. disabled people yep. and their caregivers. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and in our society, you know, who, who is last or least more so than people who are mentally handicapped? Right. That's right. You know, and that's so, right. um, you know, whoever welcomes, one such person mm. in my name welcomes me. Yeah. And, and you know, that's Mark's way of saying, you know, when you did it unto them, you did it to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should end there. Okay. Thanks, Thanks Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.